Hello and welcome to episode 9 of the China Path podcast. I'm James Scullin from the Australia China Business Council. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast in the iTunes store to receive a free episode each fortnight to keep you up to date with Australia China business matters. In today's episode, we get the Chinese perspective on investment into Australia and also discuss a potential new framework for the Australia China relationship. On the podcast today is Professor Peter Drysdale from the Australian National University's Crawford School of Public Policy and Professors Liu Shangdong and Lin Jiang from the think tank the China Center for International Economic Exchange. In 2016, the ANU and CCIEE collaborated on the report The Australia-China Joint Economic Report, the first major independent study of the Australia-China relationship compiled with support from both Beijing and Canberra. The report has subsequently been delivered to Australian Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull and Chinese Premier Li Keqiang. In our discussion that was recorded in Beijing in October 2017, we get the Chinese view on the complementary nature of Chinese investment into Australia, as well as the need for clarity on investment guidelines and the context of Chinese investment within Australia. We also address the effect Chafter has had on the bilateral relationship and ascertain how an Australia-China commission could provide long-term stability to the Sino-Australia relationship. I hope you enjoy our discussion. I'm joined here in Beijing with Liu Xiangdong and Lin Jiang, both from the China Center for International Economic Exchanges. Yeah. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you. Um, also with us is Professor Peter Drysdale from the Australian National University. Thank you also for being here, Peter. Thanks. Um, so first, just to start off, Australia and China are such different countries in terms of size, growth, economic development, and culture. Yet, how are the commercial opportunities of the relationship for both countries so complementary? The complementary relationship between Australia and China has been discussed in detail in our joint report with Professor Drysdale. There's economic interdependence between Australia and China, primarily through trade. However, broader cooperation is expected in the future, and the complementarity is likely to be further strengthened. Opportunities can be created from the complementary economic development of the two countries, particularly in terms of the industrial sector. For example, China is a major steel manufacturer and consumer, and Australia is a major iron ore producer, which shows complementarity in consumption. Nowadays, many young people in China are looking for quality education in English, and Australia is a preferred destination. The education services provided in Australia are very attractive to international students from China, and it is another area of complementarity. As mentioned in the report, there will be more trade in services and bilateral investment in the future, in addition to the traditional areas of trade, such as commodities. This also demonstrates the complementarity of our bilateral relationship. More possibilities for cooperation are emerging. With the changing economic and industrial structures of Australia and China, this is based on the changes in the direction of China's economic development in recent years, referred to as the new normal by Chinese authorities. It reflects the transition from the traditional trade structure 
to a higher level of structure, which includes an increase in outbound investment and a rising demand for trading services. So just thinking of investment, com compared to other overseas investment destinations from the Chinese perspective, so investment destinations such as the USA or Europe have a similar development profile as Australia, what makes Australia different? How is Australia seen as an investment proposition from the Chinese perspective? Indeed, there are many investment opportunities available to China in Australia compared to America and the European countries. On the one hand, this is supported by trade activities in iron ore, agriculture products and other existing services, which is complementary to China's economy. On the other hand, Australia's economy has a great degree of freedom and is highly open, so many companies and individuals in China are willing to engage in bilateral trade with Australia. Chapter also provides a great platform and opportunity for China to get to know Australia. As a result, China is more likely to consider and invest in Australia. The scale of Australia-China trade is certainly smaller than America-China or Europe-China trade, as it is related to the size of the economy itself. However, there is high interdependence in the trade relationship between Australia and China, which is associated with the structural changes of the two countries, as I mentioned in my response to the previous question. For instance, Chinese consumers want safe, high-quality agricultural products and one of the best options is to import from Australia. It is a similar case with INOR as well. These trade activities provide an important basis for the development of further investment. One chapter in the report with Professor Drysdale is dedicated to our bilateral investment, which covers some great existing conditions and areas of improvement. I am optimistic about the future of investment between Ch Australia and China, especially in the key sectors including agriculture, education, and eventually traditional mining industries. Recently in Australia, the Australian government has blocked investment bids um, from Chinese corporations, namely Kidman and uh, the Osgood Network. How is this received by the Chinese foreign investor as Australia being a stable place to invest? Is Australian overseas investment policy seen as consistent from the China perspective? These two case examples of Chinese investment being blocked in Australia are seen negatively and regretfully by Chinese investors. The message received by other Chinese enterprises is that the Australian screening policies are neither transparent nor fair. In the past, the rejection of investment and acquisition has been rare, especially with such large projects. Of course, we can understand the reasons behind it, including the nature of the state-owned enterprises and the sensitivity of the sectors. These are reasonable concerns, and foreign investment in other areas, such as America and Europe, may also encounter similar problems, and such investment has to go through similar screening processes However, the screening process should be transparent. We would find it easier to accept the outcome if there were a negative list available to all, outlining sectors in which foreign investment would not be welcome. 
Otherwise, the Chinese companies wouldn't have had the intention or the motive to invest in a foreign country. Chinese enterprises do have concerns about the two precedents of rejection, which may affect subsequent investment in Australia. This is also one of the important concerns raised in the joint report. The Chinese government has recently restricted the nature, the type of foreign investments into Australia, namely sports clubs, real estate and entertainment as investment areas. How do you think this will change the profile of the Chinese investor in Australia? The foreign investment guidelines issued by the Chinese government do not attempt to restrict investment in any particular country or sector. The real intention behind it is to regulate the activities of Chinese investors and to prevent investment with no genuine intent, but rather having other motives. The restrictions were driven by the appreciation of the renminbi last year, which prompted some Chinese companies to change renminbi to foreign currencies. Consequently, they might be looking for less desirable targets of acquisition, including sports clubs or real estate, as you mentioned, and money laundering could also be involved. In order to stop such fraudulent investments and eliminate the possibilities of panic capital outflow, China has issued rules to support acquisition, which is consistent with the main line of business of a company. However, if the acquisition is outside the scope of the business, particularly in the case of panic buying, the Chinese government needs to regulate and intervene. So, the regulatory policies are not against any particular country, and they wouldn't affect investment in Australia. I'd like to bring Peter into the discussion. Foreign investment has been integral to the growth of Australia's um, agricultural sector for many years. But uh, despite decades of foreign investment from other nations, Chinese investment in Australia continues to cause debate. What could be done on both sides to help understand the need for foreign investment into Australia, and in particular, agriculture? You're absolutely right that, that foreign investment has been integral to Australian development uh, ever since its European foundation, and it continues to be. Uh, that's one of the big complementarities, as uh, still you said, between Australia and China, that we're uh, a country uh, that's very different from China in terms of its resource endowment, including its uh, resources, mineral resources endowment, also in its uh, agricultural endowment, not in terms of absolute scale, but in terms of scale relative to population density. Mm. So it's a, a big area of opportunity in the relationship between China and Australia, like it has been a big area of opportunity in the relationship between Australia and its other Asian partners. Uh, and uh, uh, I think it is true that uh, agricultural investment is more fraught than most other areas of investment. Other areas of investment are sometimes fraught too, uh, partly because of the way in which it impacts on local communities and local community interests. Uh, but uh, you know, Chinese investment is not, not unlike other investment from Asia in this respect. Japanese investment 20 years ago, 30 years ago, was treated with the same kind of scepticism as Chinese investment mm. is today. So I, I see this as part of a phase uh, of, uh, that's related to the newness of Chinese investment in agriculture. 
uh, and to some extent, of course, the inexperience of Chinese investors in agriculture uh, in Australia as well. Uh, what can we do uh, to uh, uh, enhance the investment environment in a way that makes uh, that investment productive for, for China as well as, as Australia? Australia obviously benefits through the increased capital, the increased markets. Market links are so important here. Usually uh, a Chinese investment will be an entry point for other supplies of agricultural commodities to get into the Chinese market in new areas. And that's what's happened in recent times, of course. Uh, and uh, I think policymakers, of course, uh, have to encourage the socialisation of Chinese investment for that purpose. Mm. I think uh, also there's a need for industry associations, including agricultural industry associations, but associations like ACBC, to be actively engaged in the process of introducing Chinese investors to the Australian market for agricultural investment property uh, and uh, the circumstances of that uh, that will make it uh, uh, both uh, socially, politically and economically more attractive uh, to both parties. And governments have a role to play in terms of being very clear about their objectives in respect of investment more broadly, mm. providing a regime which is not susceptible uh, to ad hoc uh, decision making yeah. with respect to screening and so on, and transparent, as Mr. Hughes says. So, uh, improving the transparency, uh, the reliability in terms of the rules, what uh, is acceptable and what's not acceptable in the way in which welcomed in the way in which uh, investment proposals are approved. Yeah. Uh, those things are, are really important. I think they have become more important in recent times because of a certain unpredictability in the way in which investment policies have operated with respect uh, to China, but uh, more generally. So yeah. these things, I think, are top priorities for policy attention in Australia. Okay. I think the debate over Chinese investment in the agricultural sector comes from some concerns Australia may have. On the one hand, Australia may not be sure if an inexperienced Chinese investor would follow international rules and regulations in that they may take job opportunities away from local people, since many investors are state-owned or partially state-owned. Another possible concern is the influence of cultural and ideological differences. The institutional differences, in particular, could even lower the trust level between the two governments. In this situation, our media, as well as our government, may not have explained well enough whether Australia needs the investment from China. I believe an economy should be able to accept investment from any country, so long as it follows local laws and regulation, though the coordination of policies may be required in some specific instances. Foreign investors also need to be protected by policies without discrimination, no matter whether they're from China, America or Europe. Obviously one of the landmark moments in the Australia-China relationship is the China-Australia Free Trade Agreement. CHAFTA has not only reduced tariffs, um, it's not only given Australian businesses access to the services sector here in China, but it's also opened up an extensive bilateral framework to discuss Australia and China economic issues such as non-tariff barriers, IP and also investment. Are we seeing the impact of better dialogue between Australia and China as a result of chapter? 
The significance of signing chapter has been discussed in depth in the joint report with Professor Drysdale. Since tariff barriers on agricultural products were removed or reduced in 2016, there has been almost a 200% increase in trade in the sector. Chinese households do indeed have demand for agricultural products with higher quality, that is, mainly meat, dairy, and infant formula, which need to be imported from Australia. Chapter has enabled access to these products for average consumers in China. Chinese households can all benefit from chapter. This is an outcome we can see with our eyes, especially on our dinner table, not just cold figures on a spreadsheet. Chapter is clearly a very positive development in the relationship uh, between China and Australia, uh, uh, including this dimension of chapter which encourages increased dialogue in the issue areas that uh, are open and ripe for development through the chapter process. Uh, it's a beginning, yeah. but uh, it is just the beginning. Uh, uh, the, the dialogue that's encouraged in this process is uh, dialogue uh, among negotiators, among interested stakeholders and, and parties in the negotiations process. And, and that's the workhorse of making chapter better and stronger and giving it a wider coverage. But chapter wouldn't have happened if they were the only people involved in the process. Mm. Chapter was driven importantly by the strategic decisions at the political level. Mm. Uh, and uh, uh, the progress of chapter beyond its current incarnation will require similar input, strategic mm. input at the political level. Uh, and dialogues that extend well beyond the particular agendas that chapter promotes uh, into placing uh, the bilateral trade relationship, including chapter, in a broader uh, and comprehensive partnership between Australia and China, uh, such as is envisaged under the comprehensive strategic partnership between the two countries. Uh, so it's part of the mechanism that can drive the relationship, but sitting there by itself, it's, it's not going to drive it by itself without this uh, uh, strategic involvement by the leaderships on both, in both countries. Yeah, so, so, that, so that brings us to uh, the Australia-China Joint Economic Report um, that was written by both CCIEE and ANU. One of the most interesting parts of the report is the proposal for the need of an Australia-China Commission. This was even mentioned by the Australian Federal Opposition, something that they would consider if they came into government. Uh, how would such a framework build on Chapter if there was a permanent Australia-China Commission? How would it work exactly? Well, uh, the idea that uh, was developed in the course of our joint work with CCIE uh, is uh, to build an arrangement which extends uh, uh, the interaction between not only uh, uh, policy leaders but intellectual leaderships, uh, social leaderships in both our countries that can provide the long-term basis for uh, developing confidence and trust in the relationship and uh, developing an understanding of uh, the differences in each country that have to be managed in the course of building long-term uh, trust, uh, uh, security and prosperity out of the relationship. So uh, uh, there's a particular need for that sort of institution uh, between countries that are obviously 
different not only in resource endowments, economic circumstances and so on, but also different in terms of political system, institutional arrangement and so on. Mm. I mean, we had a similar initiative with uh, the Americans. Uh, and it sounds strange to say it now, but uh, America seemed very different from Australia mm. uh, in the 1940s. Uh, but we, so we needed to build links between Australia and America, and that was the first uh, treaty we had with America, not ANZUS, but uh, the treaty to establish the Fulbright Foundation. So at the Australian end of our joint study, we saw a framework there that could be very useful in uh, building engagement with China. You know, it's very difficult for, say, you know, future political leaders in Australia to come to China and interact with Chinese young leaders and mm and uh, get a, an understanding of what they're dealing with at the Chinese end. And similarly, for Chinese to do that, except on an in-out basis. So we wanted to provide a framework for the idea, through the idea of an Australia-China commission uh, that would automatically and routinely invest in that asset between our two countries. Uh, and, uh, uh, of course, there's a particular need to do that in the case of Australia-China because the idea that... Uh, uh, somebody should come and spend time at whose expense uh, in China or somebody in China should come and spend time at whose expense in Australia. Well, if we have a joint commitment uh, which is uh, invested in and managed by our two governments in an independent way, uh, then some of the uncertainties about doing that uh, are removed. Uh, and it makes it easier for you know, private companies, uh, uh, state-owned enterprises, uh, to pool money into this process and invest in developing uh, a joint understanding which is independently of their particular commercial or personal interests, uh, but uh, focused uh, strongly uh, upon developing the public interest in having uh, better understanding of in both countries of each the other's uh, circumstance, uh, uh, history and traditions, uh, ways of operating in policy terms uh, that makes the management of the relationship, uh, therefore, in the longer term, much better. It's a long-term idea. It's not, not an idea that will reap benefits overnight, but it's an investment that is likely to pay off in the long term if we do that. And it, and it goes beyond goodwill by creating an opportunity to collaborate together and, absolutely. and, and enhance the absolutely. communication. It's, it's, it's not easy. Uh, you know, this, this uh, study between us uh, is an historic first. Uh, nothing like this has been done between Australia and China before mm. with, uh, you know, two think tanks with the blessing of both governments looking uh, across the range of economic policy interests that affect both our countries and the bilateral relationship. That's not been done before. So... Uh, you know, creating circumstances in which that can be done in a whole range of areas that are relevant to the development of both countries is surely a national interest in both Australia and in China. So that's what we wanted to encourage there, thinking about that. Uh, Professor Liu, could I ask yes. you for the Chinese take on yeah, the Australia-China Commission? Yeah, I I want to give some more some climate change. So, Gongtai, Jiao Professor Drysdale has explained well what we are working on, including the Australia-China Commission. I just want to add one more thing. A country needs a plan or vision for future development. Similarly, 
We need a goal that defines the future relationship between Australia and China, which can guide and direct our work. In the joint report, we have proposed to establish the Australia-China Comprehensive Strategic Partnership for Change. Then how can we make it a reality? We suggest that it could be supported by a commission consisting of members from governments, business, among others. This commission will then complement the many existing official institutions and serve as a bridge bringing us closer to the goal of implementing the Comprehensive Strategic Partnership for Change. So how do we go forward with the Australia-China Commission? What, what are the steps to make it a reality at this stage? Well, there are a lot of details that have got to be worked out. Again, uh, uh, this, uh, this would be a big innovation. It would be a big innovation in the Chinese system and it would be a big innovation in the Australian system. So uh, we've got to work out for both countries how they could do this together in a way that's consistent with the purposes and aims of its being uh, truly uh, an independent body, uh, uh, a transparent body that promotes these objectives in both countries' interests. So I guess the first steps are going to be to work uh, through all those details. We have got uh, an upcoming joint uh, study following on from our uh, previous work. Okay. Uh, that will look at this. We'll, we'll encourage, you know, you've got to think about, you know, how, how the legalities and institutional arrangements will work, how they'll comprehend all the interests on both sides that need to be comprehended, uh, and uh, how uh, you can, uh, through those arrangements, build uh, confidence in both Australia and China that this is a good thing to be doing and it's a worthwhile uh, bilateral national objective. Uh, so... I think that's the next step. Uh, the devil will be, as they say always, in the detail, and we say so we've got to start working on the detail. Now, the conceptual framework we work through, I and uh, uh, Zhang Xiaocheng, uh, the CEO of CCIE, wrote a joint paper on this idea, and that's uh, out there. Uh, but the next step is actually to put detail uh, on those ideas and to encourage uh, researchers uh, in both countries, uh, you know, jointly to work that through. As Professor Drysdale just said, our two academic institutions have recommended the launch of the commission, but the realization may be a long-term process. We're now preparing and are trying to get support from both sides of the government. After getting the official support, the process could be sped up, and the subsequent work required would be mainly making arrangements following the design framework. A general design for this has been given out in the joint report. As you know, we have just had another national congress and some leadership changes took place. Previously, our officials have shown interest in the initiative. However, the actual implementation falls into specific departments, such as the National Development and Reform Commission, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and the Department of Commerce. So we are currently seeking departmental support too. I need political support for it on, on both sides. In Australia, uh, I think uh, somebody mentioned earlier on that there's uh, a growing uh, uh, momentum uh, of interest in it. Uh, it's by no means... Uh, assured that support for it yet in Australia, but uh, step by step uh, building an understanding of what uh, this idea is about 
and uh, getting the groundwork laid for that support is uh, a part of a process that we'll be working on going forward. Well, I think it's definitely a step in the constructive direction that we've spoken about today. So there's the risk of miscommunication um, through issues such as investment or the way the media handles certain topics. And I think the push on both sides for such a commission really helps to create a framework to have the purpose that this is why we need to discuss things, but like between both countries together to mitigate a lot of these differences. If we think of emissions trading, uh, free trade zones, or the opening up of the Chinese economy in 1978, China has a reputation for using pilot schemes. Indeed, Deng Xiaoping talked of managing an economy by crossing the river, by feeling the stones. The Australia-China Joint Economic Reports talks of Australia's strategic advantage in being able to leverage itself as a pilot for China's further liberalisation and economic reforms. How feasible is it to see Australia as a pilot for China's global liberalisation and opening up? I would like to answer your question regarding China's reform and opening up. It has been nearly 40 years since the policy was introduced, but the process is still incomplete. In 2012, China came up with a plan of comprehensively deepening reforms, which involves reviewing the aims and the frame of reference of the reforms. Why were we crossing the river by fleeing the stones before and are still following the same process in the current reform? Because the conditions in China are different from those in other countries, especially the economic and political systems. Although the reform moves forward in the direction of opening up and marketization, some Chinese elements are preserved as a result of the social system, the national conditions, and the stage of development. China is trying to deepen the opening up process at this stage, and after the National Congress, a clear statement has been made that China will be more involved in the world economy. The new, more open economy of China will be compatible with Australia's liberal economy, Although we are having discussions with America and Europe about the possibilities of FTAs and BITs, the bilateral relationship between Australia and China is more mature, and so we moved one step ahead and had CHAFTA. The next step would be the upgrade and diversification of CHAFTA. For example, China has CHAFTA with Australia, FTAs with Korea, and ASEAN, and is developing RCEP in the Asia-Pacific region. In addition to the basis of CHAFTA, Australia has great geographical advantages over America and Europe by being a part of the Asia-Pacific region and being within the scope of RCEP, which is why China's liberalization has an early focus on Australia. You said a wide range of areas in which China and Australia can experiment together in the development of their policy frontiers the bilateral investment treaty or the investment chapter of the chapter arrangement as one, working together in new ways on investment, services and other issues in RCEP is another one. All of these things uh, are fertile grounds for policy experimentation, uh, including Australia as a first step. Uh, and, uh, you know, Australia's been an early and large target for uh, Chinese investment in that context too, uh, both as a resource-rich country and complementary economy, mm. but also as a 
as a place where China can experiment in investing in a mature, institutionally strong and robust economy, and market economy, in a way that China will have to in the course of its development uh, and uh, its uh, external economic relations via trade and investment. Mm. And, of course, the other area in which, obviously, uh, you know, we're suggesting uh, you're a big experiment, really, uh, is in the management of... Uh, uh, relationships through this Australia-China Commission idea. This would, this would be an experiment mm. uh, for China. It'll be uh, a second experiment for us. We've done something like this before, but it will be very different when we do it with China, not in purpose or in substance, but in form and characteristics. So uh, that kind of experimentation, too, is going to be really important in the development of China's management of its relations with powers big and small around the world. 35% mm. of Australian exports now find themselves here in China. To what extent is there a risk that Australia is becoming over-reliant on China? This uh, idea of over-reliance, of course, uh, may have had some meaning in an era in which our trading relationships and China's were shaped in a different environment from what they are now, an environment in which we have uh, China's uh, engagement, uh, active participation in the multilateral rules through the WTO, uh, an environment in which uh, we have a big, established and internationally competitive uh, commodities trade and bilateral commodities trade relationship, uh, and an environment in which uh, we've developed a whole range of mechanisms, national uh, global and regional for trying to manage uh, the disturbances that sometimes come mm. in economic relationships, uh, bilateral and, uh, and global. Uh, all of those things uh, are important to managing uh, the concentrations of trade that we should have in our relationships with countries like China because of the strong complementarity we mentioned before. We've got similar concentration in trade with Japan, with Korea and so on. Uh, and China is exposed in the same way to Australia. Mm. China draws 81% of its iron ore supplies from the world. 61% mm. of that 81% come from Australia. Mm. That's exposure on a grand scale. Mm. China draws 25% of its, the whole range of its uh, raw material supplies from Australia mm. in value terms. Uh, so uh, we're a fairly small part of the world economy, but you know, for a country Australia's size to have that kind of interdependence and concentration mm. in trade with China, it's mutual. Mm. Uh, and uh, it's managed in a framework where we both appeal uh, to global standards and global rules. So the real risk to overdependence is not in the bilateral relationship. It's nothing to do with the bilateral relationship. What it has to do with is with having strong international rules-based system. And it's the, any threat to that that we both have to worry about. China has to worry about, we have to worry about. So anybody who tries to overturn the WTO, for example, and, and disrespect the rules under which we operate mm, yeah. uh, internationally, anyone who wants to corrode the basis of global governance of financial market through the IMF or the World Bank, uh, and the other institutions, uh, regional uh, and multilateral, that's, that, that, that threatens uh, economic security in a way that 
you know, bilateral concentrations in trade of the kind we've mentioned do not, uh, so long as they're managed in an open international economic system protected by these insurances in terms of rules and norms whereby we respect each other's participation in markets. I very much agree with Professor Drysdale. China's international trade has developed very rapidly since admission into the WTO, as there is a giant consumption base of 1.3 billion people. The concerns that Australia has are probably shared by many other countries, including Japan, Mongolia, and ASEAN. The effects of the close connections in the reliance may be amplified by the sheer size of China's market. As Professor Drysdale just said, the key is the underlying rules of trade rather than the interdependency among these countries. Consumers and producers can both benefit from trade, and in this case, Australia as a major producer needs not worry about China's ability to consume being too strong, as long as the rules of trade under the WTO are followed. So, the reliance itself doesn't bring risks. On the contrary, I think it is just simply a reflection of the complementarity. China as a major producer in some areas also exports products in large quantities, and many consumer markets depend on our products. It is in fact a win-win process. Some countries are concerned about the presence of the magnet effect, but I do not necessarily think that is the case. In a trade system, economies naturally interact and rely on one another, so there's nothing to worry about if the matter is treated as an economic one. However, when viewed from the perspective of a nation-state, concerns regarding national security might be involved, but that is a different matter altogether. Professor Liu, uh, Professor Lin, Professor Drysdale, um, thank you so much for your time today. I think a lot of what we've discussed is about communication and mutual cooperation, um, and I think the opportunity to discuss not only the Australian side, but also the, the Chinese perspective on the relationship goes a, goes a long way to understanding both countries' perspectives on each other. So thanks a lot for your cooperation today. Thank you. Thank you. In addition to Professors Liu, Lin and Drysdale, I'd also like to thank Chen Yiping for his voiceover and Kwa Yuqi for the translation and whose contact details will be on this episode's show notes at www.acbc.com.au forward slash podcasts. Also on the episode page, you'll find ANU's and CCIEE's report, the Australia-China Joint Economic Report. My thanks also to the Australian Trade and Investment Commission for their support of this podcast. To contact the podcast directly, you can reach me at james.scullen at acbc.com.au. Now, as most podcasts tend to catch on through word of mouth, if you know a friend, colleague or client who this podcast may be of interest to, please pass it on. And would also greatly appreciate any reviews of the podcast on the iTunes store. Until next time, 再见.